Hi everyone, welcome to the third episode of Best Parrot Talks. Today we will discuss the endoscopic resection method, endoscopic submucosal dissection, also known as ESD. And we're very honored that today our speakers are in front of me, Oliver Peck. Oliver Peck is an internationally renowned expert in interventional endoscopy and one of the worldwide leading expert in endoscopic diagnosis and treatment of early Barrett's neoplasia. And next to him is Professor Jacques Bergman, gastroenterologist in the Amsterdam UMC. And he's also head of endoscopy and a leading scientist in the field of uh, Barrett's neoplasia. So welcome to both of you. Um, my name is Tour Stevens and next to me is my co-host Vincent Joustra. And this is Best Barrett Talks. Yeah, so hi, uh, Jacques and Oliver. Um, maybe just a, a brief introduction for people at home uh, listening. It might be some um, young gastroenterologists with, uh, with an uh, interest in the field of uh, Barrett's neoplasia. But so just a short introduction. If there's visible lesions of Barrett's neoplasia, there's basically now two uh, methods of well removing this, uh, one being the golden standard EMR, and there's a novel technique now which we're going to discuss today, which is called endoscopic submucosal dissection. And perhaps to just start with what are both techniques and how do we do it? Uh, uh, maybe Jacques, you can start with a brief introduction about both techniques. Thank you, and thank you for inviting me. It's nice to be here with uh, with Oliver, who I uh, share a long history in this in this field. So, background on EMR versus ESD. Uh, EMR is largely a cap-based technique in which you put a transparent cap on the distal end of your endoscope and then use a variety of techniques to usually lead to suction in the tissue in the cap and then either releasing a rubber band and then snaring below the rubber band or closing a snare and then resecting with the snare. So EMR is a generally a cap-based technique for early Barrett's neoplasia. Um, downside of the technology is that it generally gets you fair pieces of tissue, but if the lesion is larger than 15 to 20 millimeters, then it becomes difficult to resect the lesion on block, so in one piece, with such a cap-based technique. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and very often lesions are significantly larger than 50 to 20 millimeters, so that if you want to remove them with a EMR technique, you have to remove them in multiple pieces. It's called a piecemeal EMR. You then start off with placing markers around the target area that you want to resect, and then in one, two, or three, or sometimes 15 pieces, you resect that whole target area in piecemeal. Yeah, all within the same procedure. Yes, generally we try to resect all visible lesions in the same procedure, because if you come back after healing, then there will be scarring, and the subsequent resection is going to be significantly okay. more difficult. Yeah. Now, ESD, on the other hand, is a technique that has been around for at least the last 10 years, and it's been developed in Japan, in which you try to remove that same target lesion, but in one piece. Uh, so that means that you can't use a cap-based technique. We generally use a very small cap to stabilize your endoscope, but it's not used to suction in the tissue. It's used to basically stabilize your endoscope and to move around and below the lesion, trying to carefully dissect fiber by fiber the whole lesion on block. So that generally starts with a an incision of the mucosa. You don't necessarily need to do the whole mucosal incision first, but for practical reasons and exploratory reasons, we will follow that route. So you mm -hmm. first dissect a mucosal incision around the lesion, and then after injecting 
fluid, you work your way underneath the mucosal layer in the submucosal space, trying to get the whole lesion out in a single piece, endoscopic submucosal dissection. Yeah, uh, maybe um, Oliver. So, so what is so important? Why is it so important to dissect this whole lesion in one piece uh, as opposed to uh, doing it in a piecemeal fashion? Yes, um, us we usually treat cancer, mm -hmm. high-grade dysplasia, and when there's a cancer in the Barrett's, um, we always want to, or we aim or the target to have an on-block resection to really assess the whole specimen in one block. So the pathologist gets only one block, and uh, he can tell us whether the resection is complete mm -hmm. on the lateral margin and also on the basal margin. And this is very important. And we don't really uh, mess up the specimen with uh, or block resection. So we really are sure that the pathologist can investigate yeah. the whole specimen yeah. uh, in one piece. So for staging and, and exactly. subsequent treatment. And, yeah. Yeah. So what are, as of yet, the indications of doing an ESD in Barrett's neoplasia? So, um, so it, it's of course a matter of the the, um, the the standpoint. So um, usually it's early cancer and it's submucosal in, in infiltration of the Barrett's um, cancer. So when you have a suspicion for a submucosal invasion, usually you try to treat um, this with ESD. And when you have a bulky lesion which is larger than uh, one. 1.5 centimeters, then you would also opt for ESD. That is an <coughs> interesting remark that you make. So if there's a sub suspicion of a submucosal lesion, so how do, you how do you determine that? If, you, if you're going with an endoscope, you see a lesion, uh, so what might be the characteristics to go for an ESD or just do uh, an EMR? Yeah, that's very difficult because yep. you have to be experienced. Um, so um, it's there are no really clear rules which what is a submucosal lesion and not. So there are some hints like the Paris classification. Mm -hmm. um, so when you have a bulky lesion, this could be um, a, a sign for a submucosal invasion. Or when you have a, a depressed lesion, or when the esophagus doesn't move very well during um, the uh, at that part of the lesion. Um, during the contraction, that could be a sign for deeper infiltration. Yeah. But sometimes you're surprised after yeah. resection. Okay, and there's no sort of imaging used prior to any to any um, procedure to look for any deeper. Usually deeper. only uh, endoscopic imaging. So you you really try to have a very close look at the lesion and um, investigate the surface of the lesion, the mucosal surface, and also the um, vessels. They can all those two th those two things can give you a hint whether it's a submucosal invading lesion or not. But we usually don't use EUS anymore, uh, endoscopic ultrasound, um, because it has been shown in studies that it's not accurate enough to okay. differentiate between a mucosal lesion and a submucosal invading lesion. So, Professor Bergman, when I listen to you, it sounds like a pretty complex procedure as well. The ESD, if you compare it to taking piecemeal bites. Uh, of a lesion. Is it something we do a lot in the Netherlands? I think currently in our unit in Amsterdam, we do about 40% of our endoscopic resections for Barrett's neoplasia with ESD. And that, that number has increased significantly compared to where we were five years ago. The main reason for that is because we expanded the indication for endoscopic treatment of neoplasia. In the past, we would not treat any patient with a suspicion of 
clear submucosal invasion. If it really was a bulky lesion or a fixed lesion like Oliver just described, we were virtually 100% sure that that would be submucosal invasive, and then the patient, according to guidelines, would need surgery anyway, and we would just be submitting a patient for a risky and unnecessary procedure. Uh, but over the last years, we've gradually expanded the field of, uh, of potentially curative endoscopic resection also to patients with submucosal cancer, and that that means that there is a very good and very strong indication to go for the optimal resection technique for that, and that has increased our numbers significantly. Logically, with growing experience, you are much easier able to surpass the technical difficulties that you would have in the early phase of when you practice ESD. So if you become more comfortable in doing the very complex and larger submucosal lesions, then your threshold of of changing from a piecemeal approach to an ESD approach for something that looks like a mucosal yet clearly uh, cancerous lesion probably have, has widened as well. Mm. Both Oliver and I are, have always been pretty conservative in just embracing ESD from the logic of doing an unblock resection for all our patients. It's simply not necessary and it's unnecessarily complex for the majority of mucosal cancers. But within the field of Barrett's, we tend to become like a minority group of people because everybody is embracing ESD because it's simply much more sophisticated, it's more sexy, it qualifies you as an expert endoscopist if you do ESD. So there's a lot of hidden and not patient-related drivers that have pushed ESD forward in the field of endoscopic management of early Barrett's neoplasia. So we, we read that it's also a very a complex procedure. It takes a lot of time to learn. It might not be as cost-effective as, as people might think. So what are your thoughts on that, especially the learning curve? Uh, what are the differences with, with that, with, with, with EMR and ESD? Yes, it's a, uh, the learning curve, it's really different from EMR. It takes many years usually to be proficient with ESD or many, many procedures. First of all, you, have, you, you should have a good teacher. Then you start with animal models and then get the first steps there. And then you should... Um, start with easy lesions um, with the supervision of an expert or an, uh, somebody who really knows how to do ESDs. And then, so it takes usually a few years until you're really proficient to um, deal also with uh, complex lesions uh, in Barrett's esophagus. Yeah, because I can imagine um, for, for the Netherlands, where we have a lot of expert centra, and uh, especially also in Germany, where it's much closer to gather the centers, um, then there might be a higher volume of these Procedures, but for instance, in well, in the United States, where the centers are much further away, uh, that might be difficult to implement. Or um, is there also a movement there towards more ESDs? Well, difference in the states within Europe is that a, a lot of endoscopic practice is driven by by money, and there's simply no reimbursement for ESD uh, otherwise than for EMR. So if you would, if an American endoscopist would spend, like Oliver and I, doing on a regular basis, like four or five hours on an endoscopic uh, submucosal dissection, whereas you could do the procedure in 25 to 40 minutes if you do a piecemeal EMR, and you get reimbursed at the same rate, then most American endoscopists really have no interest in moving into this field and spending a lot of time going through the required learning curve. And the problem is that it's, it's not only the learning curve for doing the technicality of the ESD, so making that mucosal cutting and working your way through the submucosa, being able to recognize blood vessels and coagulate them, keeping yourself orientated to the deeper muscle layer, that's all technicalities. But the imaging part 
and the endoscopic skill part. So how easy do you move with your endoscope in the distal esophagus? If you, like like Oliver had, have, had he and his group had done over a thousand EMRs in Barrett's neoplasia, and have reported on that. So superimposed on that, on those endoscopic recognition skills and those endoscopic therapeutic skills for those piecemeal EMRs, it becomes extremely easy, relatively easy to learn ESD, and yet you hear him say that it took him many years actually before yeah. he found himself to be proficient in ESD in the same manner as he found himself to be proficient in piecemeal EMR. Yeah. So that's where a lot of people struggle with. So if you're not in a high-volume center and you lack that background of endoscopic detection and piecemeal EMR, and then you immediately move into, into the most technically challenging procedure with ESD, well, that's, that's basically trying to learn Arab in, 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 in an overnight. And only with a lot of alcohol, you might be convinced you speak fluently Arab, but endoscopy doesn't work that no, way. You're no. bound for disaster if you, if you move into this field without an adequate background in endoscopic detection yeah. and endoscopic piecemeal resection. Yeah, so there seems to be a lot of sort of hurdles to incorporate this on a, on a wide scale. And so, and so what about maybe procedural technicalities or a sort of risk of adverse events or are some patients more suitable? Is there any postoperative management or um, well, I'm saying postoperative post-procedure management? Uh. Yes, of, of course it has risks. ESD has a complication rate um, and it really depends on the experience also yeah. uh, on the experience yeah. of the endoscopist uh, performing the procedure. First of all, of course, it's you have to look at the patient when it's a uh, 88-year-old patient um, and he has a lesion larger than 3 centimeters, but you can do it with EM, piecemeal EMR. So it, it the prognosis here is different than with a 50-year-old. So you can decide to do this um, with EMR, for example. Yeah. Um, the, so the patient factor is important mm -hmm. and um, regarding the complications you can have, it's like bleeding, of course. Yeah. Um, this happens um, during the procedure. Sometimes you also have post-procedural uh, bleeding. And of course, you can have a perforation. Yep. Um, this is not uh, very often in skilled hands, but um, uh, that th this can happen. The good thing is us usually perforations, because the knife is very small, are not big, and you can handle that quite easily. And then the... the you can have strictures after the procedure yeah. because usually you take out quite large pieces and when you resect uh, lesions that are larger than 50% of the circumference, um, then you have a higher risk for strictures. Yes. So we, we've heard it in the first episode as well about radiofrequency ablation. That, uh, that's a, a common um, um, a common sort of side effect of well, Baird treatment. Um, is that more often seen than EMR with ESD or is it just in general whenever you take something away in the, in the esophagus that you well might encounter structure later? Usually um, it is the uh, the area you resect. So when yeah. it's more than 50% of the circumference, I think it's the same if you do it with EMR or ESD. And there's no prospective randomized trial comparing this. Okay. Interesting. Are there any ways to increase the risk of a stenosis after an ESD? Yeah, that's one of the key issues that we need to resolve. If we're going to do deeper and more widespread endoscopic resections, the stenosis rate is really the thing that is that is hampering the wider application of that. How high is that rate? Well, as Oliver said, if you do 50% of the circumference, 
your stenosis rate will go up to 75%. And sometimes we do circumferential resections and we're 100% sure that we will get into a stenosis. Mm. And still we have to deal with that. So there are tools that, um, that may help in that. Um, one of them is injecting the, the wound bed after your endoscopic resection, either piecemeal EMR or ESD with uh, corticosteroids, or to give the patient um, tablets or, or liquid fluid that, you ho- that will hopefully cover the wound and again contain corticosteroids to reduce the inflammatory response. Jury is not completely out there which of the two is best, and we're using, we actually stop using the, the injections, we move over to the tablets, mm-hmm. because we think it's more logical to have a prolonged exposure than just doing the, in the injections, and actually the injections <coughs> themselves can be technically difficult. And if you inject too deep and you inject the corticosteroids into the muscle layer, you may even have delayed perforation, so it's probably safer and easier to use those tablets. There's an ongoing randomized study that actually looks at different dosages uh, against placebo, but I'm pretty convinced that that actually works. Uh, still, it's not optimal, and maybe we should be using not only uh, corticosteroids and, and other medication to reduce the inflammation and the, f- the, the fibro tissue response, but maybe also something that provides a matrix for healing, injecting uh, matrix cells and, and, and cell sheets have been tested I think in the next years we will see upcoming research that actually not only gives giving our patients a, a inflammatory response inhibitor, but also probably something that improves healing and creates a matrix for less stenosis-prone healing is is what lies ahead. And and what about leaving? Well, some, this is just a, a thought. But what about leaving something in sort of a stent-like well, construction that gives counterpressure and keeps it open while healing? Um, might that be an idea, or is that already been thought of, or just uh, an uh, idea? No, it's a good idea. Uh, at least we, we thought about that, and we've, we've tried it a couple of times. Uh, there's a couple of issues there. Um, first of all, the stand tends to dislocate very easily, uh, because the, the esophagus is not yet stenosed, and there's nothing keeping the, the, the stand in place. We might actually be able to bypass that if we would fix the stand, maybe with clips, uh, special design clips or, or sutures. Um, but then again, I we I'd usually find that if you try to use stents for for preventing stenosis or treating stenosis, that they cause more harm than they do any good, and we we moved away from there. Okay, uh, I think it's it's going to be trying to improve the healing process, but then again, the esophagus does the thing that the human body does best, trying to improve healing. So it tries to make the wound that you've created as small as possible. So that means circumferential contraction and longitudinal contraction to make the wound as small as possible and to heal up in that condition, which then generally leads to yeah. to stenosis yeah. and fibrosis. So we, we, we need to break that circle by probably local therapy. Yeah. And once you're in the middle of your procedure, sometimes it, it doesn't go well, it's not successful. What are, what are signs for you guys when you're doing it that you're saying, okay, perhaps in this case we should abort the procedure or, or, or you have a feeling that it's not successful? For example, um, when you have a deep infiltration into the muscle layer, so when you have a T2 situation, so when the tumor invades the muscle layer and you can't really resect it, then um, you have to usually you abort and stop the procedure. And it depends a little bit how far 
you you went with your procedure. Um, sometimes you can just leave it in and do nothing, or sometimes you can resect part of it, perhaps with a snare, just to get some histology. It depends a little yeah. bit on yeah. on really the situation, but um, you can stop um, during ESG. Yeah. And um, Jacques, I, I heard you saying about the well about the submucosal thickness and uh, histology part, and, and we've been reading um, about this in a well recently published paper where actually the submucosal thickness was quite comparable uh, at histology uh, between EMR and uh, ESD. So, what are your thoughts uh, on that? I, I, I imagine you've read the the paper, which is going to be in the disclaimer, of course, but. Yeah, that's 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 an interesting paper that was published yeah. in Endoscopy, I think, this month actually. Yeah, um, it actually suggests that the conceptual argument for an unblocked resection that you get a better histological specimen yeah. compared to piecemeal EMR may be a little bit overrated uh, because it actually showed that the the thickness of the submucosal layer in the endoscopic resection specimens between EMR and ESD were, first of all, comparable. But it also showed that ESD specimens lacked any submucosa. Yeah, in around a third of... In about a third of the the estimated surface area. Whereas if you... The name says it, it's endoscopic submucosal dissection. It's the whole idea behind the technique, right? So if at least one third of that dissection actually is at the level of the uh, muscularis mucosa... That would mean if you would have a submucosal cancer, then you would then have an R1 resection at the vertical margin. Yeah. Uh, and, but that study also showed, and that study actually came from three high-volume German centers in Hamburg, Dusseldorf, and in, in Augsburg, that there was a significant variability between these centers if it came to the extent of that inadequate or inadequate submucosal dissection, let's, yeah. let's put it that way. And again, it points to what was Oliver was saying, is really, you can do an ESD, but the quality of that ESD is very much determined by the quality of the endoscopist yeah. and how well he actually does a submucosal dissection or a suboptimal submucosal dissection. And actually, that parameter in that study, how much submucosa do you have in your resection specimen, might actually be a very good quality parameter for an adequate ESD. Yeah. Yeah, so it's a very important uh, outcome uh, indeed. So we, we've been discussing now um, uh, extensively, well, ESD, MR, differences, um, uh, but also uh, and new studies, and maybe something for the future. So how do we in the future, maybe Oliver, how do we in the future position this treatment, uh, well, in the current needs place management, and, and what are perhaps um, future unmet needs that need to be uh, encountered or need to be dealt with before we can, well, move this further? Um, I think uh, we need uh, more easy ways to perform ESD. It's still a very complex technique, and as we uh, discussed, you have to be very skilled. You have to have a a long learning curve. Um, But if we would have tools to make it easier, much more easier and quicker, then I think we would use ESD more and more often than EMR because it has, of course, uh, many uh, many positive uh, things compared to EMR. I think um, this is, would be one thing I would expect in the future. There are already some tricks you can use, like counter-traction and with, um, with um, uh, clips and strings or rubber bands and something like that. Um, I think this 
would be the most important influ- would have the most important influence on on the use of ESD mm-hmm. um, versus EMR. Yeah, so so counter traction that's probably the one thing that we suffer most from. Yeah, uh, an endoscopist is is a pretty stupid instrument because it's basically you have just a single finger, and with a with an eye on the tip of your finger. Mm-hmm. So you. The only thing you can do is move in and out. And you can inject something and you can burn something. Um, but it, there's not like a, a small guy taking the specimen and lifting it up for you so that you have a second hand or a second finger and that you can uncouple your endoscopic visualization from wha- what your finger is doing. So if during laparoscopic surgery... Yeah, so it might, sur- might be more like a laparoscopic procedure. Well, the yeah, the, the yeah. surgeon has two hands, yeah. so he, yeah. he can have triangulation, and the movements of his hands are independent from, from his visual view. Yeah. In, yeah. in endoscopy, the endoscope for vision and the endoscope for therapy are coupled. Yeah, so everything and you do is where your camera goes, of course. Exa- yeah. And there's only a single lumen. Yeah. So to, to create some counter-traction, and there are new devices actually coming out that actually are very elegant... There's like a clip that you can place on the on the specimen that you're going to resect, and it has a small magnet in a in a ball, and you can place that on the specimen, and then take another clip with with a magnet, click it onto the one, and clip that one to the opposite wall, for instance. A very easy through the scope counter traction technique, or a retraction wire that basically has a memory sh- alloy to it, so that you clip it onto the specimen and you clip it distal to it, and it it constantly pulls away the specimen from mm. the deeper layers. Very simple and elegant tools, but all focusing on, I think, what Oliver was alluding to, we need yeah. tri- triangulation. We need a, a second hand outside yeah. the endoscope yeah. that helps you to better... Just to hold the lesion, to, exactly. to have it as tight, and then you can dissect it. Okay. Uh, with that, I think we can uh, finish this episode. We would like to thank both of you for being here and for this very interesting uh, discussion. And to the people on the other side, thanks for listening. Next time we're discussing another novel treatment strategy in Barrett's neoplasia. It's an alternative to heat-based treatment modalities, which is the cryoablation. And uh, we hope to meet you then again. (laughs) 